Our sermon text this morning comes from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 27. We'll be studying from verses 1 to 41, Genesis 27, 1 to 41. Before we read that text, we'll pray. I'll be seeking God's blessing upon the reading and upon the teaching. And so please now, if you'd bow your heads and join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come now as your people gathered in your presence. We worship you and you alone. And we pray, Father, now as we worship you, sitting here under your word, the word read and the word taught. Father, that you indeed would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that you would help me as I speak to speak according to the wisdom of God and not according to the foolishness of man. Let no vain imaginations enter into my thoughts. Father, I pray that all of us would be given ears that hear, eyes that see and hearts that are understanding and obedient. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 27, reading from verses 1 to 41. Hear the word of God. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice. But the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. 
So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, my fa oh, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Amen, and may God bless his word to us. <clears throat> I'll lay before you a question. I want you to think carefully about what it is that I'm asking you. Don't sort of jump up and shout the answer. Just think about this carefully. Do you believe in the providence of God? Not only do you believe in the providence of God, do you trust in the providence of God? Do you truly submit, consciously submit to the concept of God's overruling, guiding providence? Think about what it is that we just read. To use a modern term, this is what you call a dysfunctional family. Four people, four sinners. 
all of them here are displaying the worst of their natures. All of them here are sinning deliberately with calculation. All of them here are doing whatsoever they please. All of them here are presuming that they can play with destiny, that they can play with providence. All of them here are assuming that their will can override God's will. I said four sinners. It is my belief that three of those sinners are saved by grace through faith. And one of those sinners, we're told in the scripture, was hated by God. Yet, when we look at what we just read, you can barely tell the difference between the behaviour of one or another. Four sinners following after their own desires, doing whatever they pleased. And yet by the end of it, whose will has been done? Whose purposes have been accomplished? God's will has been done. God's purposes have been accomplished. The blessed line, the line of Abraham and Isaac now has a third name. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And as soon as I say that, it should be instantly familiar to you. Oh, that that runs through all of Scripture. Even a man like King David prays to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Exactly that which God intended. Exactly that which God planned in spite. In spite of the operation of sinners is brought about. In the end, this is going to bring us to some big and tough questions. We're going to think about sin. We're going to think about the operation of a person's will. We're going to think about God's involvement in these things. These are tough questions. Some people retreat from the idea of providence and foreordination and predestination and election, etc., etc. They retreat away from it because they feel that um, these doctrines put the responsibility for evil on God. And so they run away. But we're going to have to think carefully. We're going to have to see if we can come up with some sensible answers that are scriptural answers, my friends. Scriptural. We, the people who claim to be the people of God, we must think things through according to the scriptures. If you claim to worship God, let me tell you something. Point one, if he doesn't want you to know him, you would not know him. You might know he's there. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. But knowing that he's there is not knowing him. If you know him, you know him because he has revealed himself to you. And when God, the creator of all creation, reveals himself to you, you don't get to then choose what parts of God you like and what parts of God you don't like. God is not a buffet meal. You don't grab your plate and walk along the side of the room and say, I'll have some of this grace I like, forgiveness I like, and the fact that God allows me to be a thinking, choosing being I like. I like all these things. And then you come to the next part of the laid out food and there you see God controls everything. 
God ordains everything. God punishes the wicked. I don't like those things. I'll just have the sweets. Doesn't work that way. God is not a buffet meal. If you are a believer in and a worshipper of the living God who has revealed himself through scripture, well, my friends, you have a duty to submit to that God as he has revealed himself to be. You don't get to choose what you want. If you start to try and choose what you want, what you're doing is you are creating an idol. You're choosing someone who is not the God of the scriptures. And if, my friend, you are choosing an idol, behind every idol stands a servant of the evil one himself. That's what the scripture tells us. So let's look at the people, the four sinners involved. Let's look at them. We've got Isaac, father of the clan. Isaac, who would surely be aware that the word that was given when Rebekah was actually pregnant, the word that was given back in Genesis chapter 25, was that there are two nations in your womb, the two people and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Isaac was probably the one who actually spoke that answer to Rebekah's prayer to Rebekah. Rebekah was troubled as to why her pregnancy seemed to be nothing more than a war going on within her. And it says she went to the Lord to pray and she received that answer. Well, she probably went to the Lord to pray with her husband, for he would have been functioning as the priest and as the head of the household. And she probably got that answer through her husband, who had received directly from Abraham the promises of God. The same husband to whom God appeared twice. I don't believe that Isaac was unaware that the blessings were to fall on Jacob. He was aware of it from before the babies were even born. Yet we're also told that in Genesis chapter 25, verse 28, that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, you know, I've seen families where they play favourites. I've seen parents who clearly have one child whom they favour over the others. And here we have a man who is in the promised seed. Through him all the nations shall be blessed. He's received the word that the older shall serve the younger. But the older's such a good cook. He, he brings me such good food. Surely not. Surely not. He's a man's man. He's a hunter and he brings me good food. Surely not. Surely the younger must serve the older. And so Isaac, being perfectly aware of the will of God, which has been clearly expressed, decides that it's time to start manipulating. It's time to start arranging for providence to go in the way that he wants it to go. Remember Abraham? Abraham had a son, an unwanted son. His name was Ishmael. Abraham's prayer to God was, oh, but oh, that Ishmael would stand in your presence. And God's answer was no, but. No, but. You do have a son. His name is Ishmael. He is your firstborn. He was born to you by Hagar. 
and he will not stand before me. No, but you're going to get a son of the promise and he's the one that will stand before me. No, but. Well, Isaac decides that I'm pretty clever, that I know how to play the game. And if there's something going on that's just between Esau and I, if I don't tell other people, if I just quietly do this thing, I think I can arrange providence the way I think providence ought to be. Esau, get in here. Get in here, mate. You know I'm getting old. You know, as an old man, I could die any day. I want to put the blessing on you. Get out and get me some food. Get me into a good mood. Butter me up. Butter me up and I'll take care of it. And I'll lay the blessing on you. I'm not asking you to turn to these passages. Unless I specifically say turn to a passage, if I refer to a particular passage, just let me read it to you. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. The Apostle Paul there says their end is destruction, their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Now, I'm not saying he's speaking specifically of Isaac, but Isaac, the chosen one, the son of the promise, he was certainly drifting off into worldliness. His God is his belly and his mind was set on earthly things. For a good feed, I will try and mess with the providence of God. For a good feed... I'm willing to try and play God. Isaac, senior sinner, sinner number one. Well, sinners rarely come on their own. Sinners usually gather together. And so we go to the next person, Rebecca. Rebecca. When we met Rebecca, she was a beautiful, helpful, faithful girl. I'm sure she's still beautiful. I'm sure she's still faithful. And in her own way, she's probably still a very good woman of faith. But this is not her best moment. There's plenty of husbands and wives here. Let me ask you a question. How does deliberate deception go with regards to your marital relationship? Now, I'm not talking about you hid the birthday present until the birthday or you hid the arrangements you'd made for anniversary celebrations until the day of the anniversary. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about outright deceit, lying and manipulation. How does that go when it happens in your marriage? Is that the way you sow happiness and joy in the household? You know the answer, don't you? The answer is no. No. Happy marriage is built upon honesty and trust and faithfulness one to another, submission one to another in the Lord. It's built upon the man being the head of the house and ruling his house compassionately and in love. It's built upon the wife submitting to her husband because in her husband she sees Christ-likeness. That's what happy marriage is about. And here we have Rebecca listening listening, listening. Isaac's got a plan. He wants to bless the wrong boy. I'd better do something about it. What's the assumption there? By the way, I had better do something about it. Whose plan are we talking about? We're talking about God's plan. 
It's God's plan as to who will be blessed. It's God's plan as to who will receive the promises. It's God's plan as to who or through whom he's going to bring blessing to all the nations. Ultimately, the Messiah, the seed of the woman, the ultimate seed of the woman in the singular. When you think that you have to sin in order to bring about God's plan, what are you saying internally? God needs my help. God can't do it himself. God can't make it happen. Don't worry, I'm here. God, I'll save you from your weakness. Rebecca presumes that God needs her help in order to bring about the will of God. And so she sets up a plan whereby she's going to lie and cheat and deceive her own husband. We're going to talk a little bit more about this later on, but I'll just raise this point now and then we'll move on. God never, ever gives his people permission to sin. Full stop. For no purpose. We never, ever have permission to sin. Don't bother trying to tell me or tell God or tell anyone else that it was all for a good purpose. In the end, you wanted to serve God. It doesn't work that way. We are to serve God through obeying his commandments. We are to serve God through being godly. We'll leave that there. Rebecca sets up a scheme, a plan. And she calls in her favoured son, the youngest son, Jacob. So let's talk about Jacob. Jacob, for those who don't know, is my favourite Old Testament character. I just love that God takes such a flawed man, such an obviously flawed man. His name means to cheat, to grasp at the heel, to usurp. And it's said here by Esau, as is his name, so is his character. God takes this man who so clearly has no recommending traits. There's no reason why God should take this man. But God says, this man, I take this man, and this man I'm going to make my chosen one, and through this man shall all the nations be blessed, and this man I'm going to transform, and you're going to get to see how I do it step by step by step as we read through the book of Genesis. So that by the end of his life, Jacob is Israel, God's prince upon the earth. And so I love Jacob. How easily, how easily was he set or led astray by his mother? We know that he's manipulative. We know that he's opportunistic. Back at the end of Genesis chapter 25, Esau comes in hungry. Give me some of the red stuff, the red stuff, I'm hungry. Jacob says, sure, I'll trade you a bowl of red stuff for the birthright. No problem. Have a bowl of red stuff. Give me the birthright. Now, what was Esau thinking at this moment? I think he was thinking, one, the birthright's worth nothing. Because the birthright at this moment is only a birthright to promises. Eventually, our seed will inherit the lands around about us. But at the moment, all we own is a graveyard. And he's clearly not a praying man. 
He's clearly not a man who actually understands, cares or loves God. Cares about the word of God or loves his God. And furthermore, he probably thought, and two in the long run, who cares what I said? 40, 50 years time, I was only joking and I was too young to understand what I was saying. So he agrees. He agrees. I will sell the birthright for a bowl of red food. Yum, yum. Let's go. Jacob, the opportunist. But strange, Jacob understood something. God was witness. God was witness. I get to repeat one of my illustrations because we've got sort of half a congregation of people who weren't here a week or two ago. Well, I've got, um, I've got this picture in my mind. You've got Isaac and his two sons at a campfire at night. And Isaac talking about the God who had appeared to him. Isaac talking about the promises of God. Our seed will inherit this nation. Through us, all the world will be blessed. This is wonderful. This is the same God who appeared to Abraham and called him out from idolatry. Our God, the family God. And you've got two boys sitting there and one boy is Esau and he's thinking, I've heard all this before, it's boring, I'm so sick and tired of hearing about this God. You can't see him, there's no idol, there's no statue, we don't have a temple, we don't have priests or priestesses, I'm sick of hearing this stuff about the promises, all we own is a graveyard. And you've got Jacob. He's a little liar and he's a little cheat. But you've got Jacob going, I love the sound of this God. I love what I'm hearing about this God. I want to be blessed by this God. I want my children to inherit the promises of this God. Esau couldn't care less and Jacob just wanted to be the blessed one. Jacob, so easily led into deceit. And think about this. What's your feeling when you've been deceived? Have you ever been just outright deceived by somebody? Commitments were made, promises were made. And then sometime later, whether it's with hindsight or perhaps there's a moment of revelation, somebody gets caught out. Sometime later, you realise that you have been totally and utterly deceived. How do you feel? What do you think you are? I was so stupid is the thought that runs through your mind. What a fool I was. How could I not have seen that? How could I not have put one and one together and got the correct answer, which is two? Well, Rebecca and Jacob are willing to run a large-scale deception against the head of the house. His name is Isaac. What's the assumption? Well, it says Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see. And just sort of in that description, there's sort of also the suggestion that he's fading a bit mentally, fading a bit spiritually and in his mind. The old fool wouldn't know unless we told him. That's the assumption. The old fool wouldn't know unless we told him. In other words, the assumption is that Isaac's a fool and can be deceived and it can be done rather easily. You just need to get a few of the props in place and it can be done. Three sinners, my friends. And these people are considered in the scripture to be people of faith. Three sinners. 
chasing after their own sinful desires. Then desire, when it has been conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. From the book of James, three sinners. And then we have the last person to speak of, Esau. Esau, the man's man, the hunter. Think of that. You know, I went shooting with one of my sons the other day. We knocked over a wild pig. What a high point. Loved it. I was so glad, smiling from ear to ear. You're looking at me, he doesn't smile from ear to ear. Sometimes I do. Believe me. He knocked over a pig. It was a great day. You're Isaac. You're the father of Esau. We're told he's a skillful hunter. That actually, for people who read the scripture carefully and you're reading the book of Genesis, there was a skillful hunter before. His name was, if you don't remember, his name was Nimrod. And Nimrod was evil and accursed. Esau, skillful hunter. He captures he captures game. He's, he's not just a good hunter. He's a good cook. He knows how to handle the stuff. He can catch it and he can turn it into food and the food is good. Esau. In this whole <clears throat> relating of the life of Esau, there's not one word of prayer. There's not one indication that he has in him of himself any relationship with God. Esau doesn't trouble himself with trying to address God. When he wants something, he runs to his father, Isaac. Esau, who even though he had sold his birthright and thought in saying that, it counts for nothing. Suddenly he wants it back again. Suddenly he wants it back again. You know, ever had the experience? Something you said a year or two ago comes back and, you know, as they say, it bites you on the rear end. Husbands, that often happens with your wife. You've said something a few years ago, she doesn't forget it. But you forget it, and then two years later she reminds you because you've just transgressed concerning the very issue of which you spoke. But he said something and he thought it didn't count. But it did count. The scripture tells us that our words count both against us and for us. By your words you will be judged. It did count. Don't speak lightly of holy and precious things, my friends. Not ever. Not ever. Don't speak lightly of such things. Esau, with crying, comes seeking a blessing. Got a question for you. Why was there no blessing for him? You need to, it's something worth understanding. Why was there no blessing for him? Well, you need to think about the nature of true saving faith at this time. It's actually, it, it, a, similar, a similar thing applies even today. I'll ask you about today and then we'll talk about in the age of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. But you'll see what I'm, you'll see what I'm getting at the moment I ask you about today. Tell me, my friends. How is one to be saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God the Father. Is there any other way? There is no other way. 
Is there any other way to God the Father other than through God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit? Answer, no, there is not. All right, let's go back to the age that we're speaking of here, the time that we're speaking of here. Who has the promises? Isaac. How are the promises to be transmitted? Isaac is to speak prophetically and as a priest in his own family and transmit the promises to one of his own sons. How would it be possible for Esau to be saved? If Esau had true faith, what would be the sign of his faith? You know, we're saved by faith alone. But as it has often been said by some fairly good theologians, theologians, I should say, the faith alone that saves is never alone. What comes with saving faith? Works. The works that we are predestined to do. So when Esau realises that the prophetic promises have been laid upon his brother Jacob, if Esau was truly desiring salvation, what did he have to do at that moment? He had to go to his brother Jacob, drop all pretense and say, I see now that you are the blessed of the Lord. I see now that all the promises rest upon you that the holy seed is coming from you and that through you all the nations will be blessed, that whoever blesses you will be blessed and whoever curses you will be cursed. Therefore, I drop to the ground in front of you, I bend my knee to you and I swear that I will serve you and do all that I can do to ensure the fulfilment of the promises of God. That would be how he would build the church at that time. Is there an example of any such thing in Scripture? Well, think of the servant of Abraham who got sent to secure the bride for Isaac. He was probably Eliezer of Damascus, Abraham's most trusted servant who was named in the book of Genesis. He wasn't of the line of Abraham. But in everything that he does as he goes to the far land and secures the bride for Isaac, what do we find? At every step of the way, he's a man of prayer. And he takes this mission to secure the bride for Isaac very, very seriously. Why? Because this is how God is using him to build the church. He makes himself the servant of the people of God because he is a man of faith. Esau. If he had become a man of faith, what would he do? He would submit to Jacob. I will serve you. I will not rebel against the providence of God. I will not rebel against the clearly revealed will of God. I will serve you. I will do all that I can do to make sure that you are successful in all of your undertakings. I will be your most trusted servant. Give me any job. Instead, he goes to his father and says... All right, you've given a blessing to Jacob, give a blessing to me. You see, instead of submitting to the true revealed religion at that time, which is faith in the God of Abraham as revealed to Abraham and Isaac, instead of submitting to the providence of God at that moment, he says, start a religion through me. 
Lay a blessing on me. Let me be the father of another nation. He doesn't want things God's way. He wants things his way. And so there's no blessing for him. You don't get to do things your way. You don't get to be a Christian your way. You don't get to be faithful your way. You don't set the parameters of your religion, my friends. If you are truly saved, well, then you are seeking to submit to the scriptures and the commandments of God. I'm not saying you'll do it perfectly. I make no such claim. But I'm saying that you will always be seeking to grow in faithfulness, always be seeking to grow in obedience. Because that's what we who are of Christ do. Christ will build his church and against it, the gates of hell will not prevail. Anyone who is not in their life seeking to serve the Lord Jesus by building the church in any way that they can, however humble, however insignificant, well, they just haven't got it yet. They haven't understood it yet. How do you serve the Lord Jesus? You gather with him. That's a saying of the Lord Jesus. You either gather with the Lord or you scatter from the Lord. We gather with him. We harvest with him. We work with him in obedience to him. Esau was not transformed, was not changed, was not faithful. He wanted to be the head of his own nation. He wanted to be the head of his own religion. He wanted to receive his own blessings. He was not willing to submit to the revealed will of God. And so we read that Jacob, I have loved, says God, but Esau, I have hated. And that's the way Esau had always been, completely unchanged. That which he was born was that which he remained. An untransformed sinner left to his own devices, burying himself deeper and deeper in a pile of sin, digging himself deeper and deeper into a sewer. You know, God doesn't actually have to actively condemn nor curse anyone. He need only withdraw his restraining hand and leave them in their own muck, their own mess. And we'll bury ourselves and we'll destroy ourselves and our own base desires will destroy us. Salvation is by grace. Even being restrained from sin is by grace. So, We have once again this idea of sinners sinning as they desire, following their own desires. And yet, everything is happening according to the foreordained providence of God. I often think the most miserable thinking being in all of creation, the most miserable thinking being in all of creation, the most miserable conscious being in all of creation has to be the devil himself. Why? He hates God. His every thought is rebellion. And he does nothing that is not according to the foreordained providence of God. Absolutely nothing. Even his rebellion is made to do good for those that love God. Even his hatred is made to work for the good of those who love God. And even his hatred, his rebellion and his wickedness is made to reveal the glory of God in the big picture. 
And sometimes you don't see it. You don't understand it. You, you look around the world around about you and you see wickedness. That's not hard. The nations rage. The kingdoms plot in vain. The people seek to cast off the law of God. We see it all around about us. But I'm telling you that God is in the business of revealing his glory through whatsoever is happening. Sometimes we just can't see it because we don't have a big enough vision. We don't have a timeless vision. We don't have an eternal vision. We don't have God's vision. And sometimes you only realise later on that terrible thing that happened. I see now how God has made it work for good. And it may well be that way when we arrive in the presence of our Lord himself, that our eyes are opened and we start to understand the bigger picture as much as we can. So all of this happens according to the will of God. So let's ask some difficult questions. I'll try, try and bring this to an end before too long. Is sin in the foreordained providence of God? I don't just mean sin in general. I mean sin in particular. The sins of people. Is sin in the foreordained providence of God? My answer is yes. Yes. Now, you might want to use different words. I know that many people would really prefer that I use the word the permission or the permit of God. God allows things to happen. That's fine. In a way, I don't, I don't want to even argue with you. We are still talking about the same thing. If you permit something to happen that you had the power all along to stop, for some reason you wanted it to happen. That's just undeniable. You see, if you want to start telling me that God created angels, archangels and people, that God created the heavens and the earth, but he didn't really honestly know what was coming next, well, what you're doing is you are speaking to me of a God who is less than the God that has revealed himself in Scripture. You are, you are taking away from God the nature of divinity. God is all-knowing, all-seeing and eternal. The moment you say that there was something that God did not know, you're saying that God is not the God who he says he is. God is a liar. Well, my friends, if God is a liar, what are we doing here and why would we bother? God knew what was happening. He created an archangel. Scripture, some versions tell us that the archangel was named Lucifer, although many argue that that's not a very good translation. But he created a spirit being who was great and mighty and beautiful and powerful. Could well have been the greatest created being upon the face of the earth, or I should say in all of creation. Remembering that Jesus is uncreated. To say that Jesus is eternally begotten is not to say that Jesus is created. Eternally begotten is saying that as long as there has been God, God has been Father, Son and Holy Spirit. God created this spiritual being and this spiritual being became proud of the greatness with which he was created and fell into sin. That's what the scripture tells us. 
Do you think God didn't know what the result of that would be as he created him? (laughs) Of course God knew. And yet he created him. And when God created the man and the woman, do you think he didn't know that they, in their immaturity, though they had, though they were adults at creation, they were in a way, in a manner of being, they were inexperienced and knowing nothing in a certain way? Do you think God didn't know that they couldn't be deceived, that Adam could not rebel? If you tell me that, you're telling me that God is less than God. And I don't want to hear it. I just don't want to hear it. It's not worth hearing. We worship the almighty living God, powerful to save, undeniable in the accomplishment, in the accomplishing of all of his purposes. And so we're trapped with this idea of God permitting or ordaining that sin would happen. Does God say that this is the case? And the answer, my friends, is yes, he does. Turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 45. We'll pick it up at verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and there is no other besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. The word calamity in the ESV, if you're reading one of the New King James versions, will say evil. I am the Lord who does all these things. God doesn't back away from responsibility. I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. Or how about we look at a proverb, Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 4. Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord, Yahweh, has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. What does Scripture tell us? Scripture tells us that God knows that sin is in the world. God knows what sin is. God indeed has foreordained that all things come to pass according to his will. Does that make God morally responsible? Are we allowed to accuse God in this instance? And the answer to that is certainly no. God is God. We're sort of getting into an area, technical term, theodicy. The Odyssey. What's the Odyssey? The Odyssey is is the attempt to answer the question, if there is a God, why is there evil? Basically, to put it simply. If there is a God, why is there evil? Well, granting that there is a God and granting that God is good and only good, that God is righteous and only righteous, that God is holy and only holy, that he can do no wrong, well, that God has brought about creation. And his purpose in creation is to reveal his glory. He has done these things for for his own glory. And so, my friends, God chooses to reveal his glory. 
And that is good. It's only good. It's transcendently good. It's beyond our human understanding, to be honest, of good. I'm not saying we can't get hold of the concept, but I'm saying that we can't encircle it. We can't get our minds completely around it. God has chosen to reveal his glory. And that is the ultimate good act. There is no greater act of good other than that God chooses to reveal his glory. And so, my friends, people like you and I, what right have we got to say to God, you should not have chosen to reveal your glory in a particular way? The answer, we have no right to say any such thing. None whatsoever. If God chooses to reveal his glory in a particular way, we must say, as worshippers of the living God, amen. We must give that our amen. I'm not saying that you pretend that evil is good and I'm not saying that you must pretend that good is evil. That's not what I'm saying. Evil is evil. Good is good. But God said to Job when Job was wrestling with these questions, God said to Job, he never actually gave Job an answer. But one of the things that God said to Job was, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Everything under the whole of heaven is mine. Think of it, the sufferings of Job. At the time, we're told that Job was the only righteous man upon the earth. He was the faithful man. He was the beloved one, beloved and chosen by God. And then everything went wrong. God permitted or ordained that Satan could indeed attack Job, kill his children, destroy his wealth, destroy his health and turn his wife against him. That's misery. (laughs) Imagine the first three and then at the end of it, your wife turns against you. That's misery. And Job's asking all these questions. I want to speak to God. I want to have an argument with God. I want to know why he's done this to me. I want to understand. And God doesn't actually answer. God just gives him more questions. It's as though God says to Job, you've got questions. Hey, buddy, hear mine, because I know that you've got no answers. And one of those questions that God asks Job is, who has first given to me that I should repay him? In other words, he's saying, Job, what do I owe you? What do you think I owe you? What power do you think you have over me? I'm God. You see, my friends, worship is not actually just a mental thing. It engages the mind. We must understand whatever it is we are capable of understanding. But ultimately, we must submit to our God. And we must be willing to say that which I do not understand, I trust into your hands, my God. That which is beyond me is not beyond you. You are my God. And so, my friends, we worship our God. We trust that him revealing his glory into creation by whatsoever means he desires to reveal his glory is a good thing. We read earlier in Romans chapter 9, if we had been reading, you would have heard the Apostle Paul say, so what? So what if God has chosen to make one vessel for salvation and another vessel for destruction? What right has any vessel got to answer back to God? He makes them the way he wants to. 
Paul's saying you worship God. You trust God. And if you're going to put almighty power into someone's hands, well, you don't want to put it into the hands of a man. And you don't want to put it into the hands of an angel. You don't want to put it into the hands of any created being. If you want to, if you want to have almighty power, you want it in the hands of God, as it were. Almighty, all-powerful, good and only good God. Our God, whom we worship, whom we trust. In the face of evil, in the face of the wickedness that we see around about us, we see death, we see destruction, bloodshed. There are good things happening, but, you know, it's easy to look at the world and you just see so much wickedness. In the face of all these things, we worship God. God is working out his purposes. Question. Instead of trying to claim it as a memory verse or some such thing, Romans 8.28 reads, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Have you stopped and considered what's being said? All things work together for good. It's not asking for your permission. (laughs) It's not asking for your approval. It's simply making a statement of fact. If you are in Christ, if you are one of those who love God, all things are working together for good. Statement of fact. When God makes a statement of fact, he's not seeking your approval, my friends. He's seeking your submission. Accept what it is that he has to say. Bend the knee and worship You are in the presence of the living God. So, God foreordains according to his providence that there be sin in creation. Not just in general, but particularly. But God himself is not morally responsible for sin. We can charge him with nothing. We can accuse him of nothing. People are responsible for sin. People make their own choices, yet God accomplishes his purposes. Could I find an example in Scripture? I can. Is it explicit? Yes, it is. Let's turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 10. God speaking to a nation and the king of that nation. The nation is Assyria. Assyria was an evil, idolatrous nation. Assyria was an invading nation and the enemy of the people of God, the enemy of the nation of Israel. Assyria was going to destroy, as it were, the nation of Israel, particularly the northern kingdom. God speaking through Isaiah at verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 10. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Hear verse 7 carefully. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. What is God saying? This nation, Assyria, this king of Assyria, I'm going to use him. My people have sinned against me terribly. They have basically turned God into an idol. They are worshipping golden calves. 
And God says, I'm going to send this wicked, godless, idolatrous nation against my own people and they are going to kill. They are going to murder. They are going to rape. They are going to plunder. They are going to kill little children. They are the cruelest, beastliest nation on the earth at that time. People will be sold off into slavery. And this is happening because I have sent them against my people to discipline my people. But look at what God says about Assyria at verse 7. But he does not so intend. He has no intention of being God's tool. He has no intention of being used by God to accomplish the purposes of God. He's doing whatsoever he wants in his sinful desires, in his own wickedness. He's doing wickedly. And God says, and this is my intention. He does not so intend and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. We go on a bit more revealing of his nature. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Karkemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not, Samar- is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? He's wicked. He says the real God is no real God. He's just an idol like every other idol. I've crashed down many a temple in my day. I've stolen many an idol in my day. I'll steal these idols and they mean nothing. I can do it. I'm I'm proud. I'm powerful. I'm mighty. I can do as I please. I can do whatsoever I desire. That's what he says. But look at what God says. Verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. There you go. Think about it. Think about what's being said. You've got a wicked man, a wicked nation. They're being used by God to discipline the people of God. They're being used by God to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. They're proud, they're boastful, they're wicked. God makes it plain that in doing this, these wicked people are doing exactly according to the will of God. Exactly according to the will of God, which is their own will. Because they're hateful, proud, boastful and arrogant, they're murderous. And then God says, and when I've finished using them, when I've finished using them, guess what? Then I'm going to hold them accountable for the wickedness that I see in them. (laughs) God both uses the wicked and then he punishes the wicked for being wicked. You can blow that picture up over all creation. You You can lay that lens down over all creation. Martin Luther said that, Satan is God's dog and he rattles the chain now and then. Satan, wicked, evil, hateful, rebellious. He wishes he could break free from the providence of God and he cannot. He wishes he could break free from the rule of God and he cannot. That's why I said earlier, the most miserable being in all creation being used by God and what the scripture tell us is his ultimate destination when the day comes when the day of judgment comes his ultimate destination is the lake of fire God says I'm using him at this moment 
And when the day comes, I will punish him for his wickedness for all eternity. So, my friends, God accomplishes his purposes. Let's try and make this the closing statements. God accomplishes his purposes throughout humanity. Even sinners in their sin are ultimately accomplishing the purposes of God. We, the people of God, have no permission to sin. We do not choose to serve God in wickedness. We, the people of God, are to serve God in holiness and righteousness. Everything that we do is to be in fulfilment of the commandments of God as revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. But we have no right to accuse God of doing wrong, even when he uses the wicked to accomplish his purposes. Because he is God. And who has first given to God in order that God should repay us? And the answer to that question is obvious. Nobody. Nobody. God is not morally responsible for the evil that is in the world, though God himself takes responsibility for his own creation. He is revealing his glory And that is the greatest good that God can do. He is revealing his glory, his goodness, his beauty, his holiness, things that we just just don't appreciate enough. But my friends, that's what God is in the business of doing throughout all of creation and throughout all of time. And so sinners, they play their silly little games. Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, Jacob, They play their silly little games. I can play with the providence of God. I can play with the plans of God. I can make it work out to my advantage. (laughs) Then God says, poor children, poor children. It works out my way. It works out according to my will. Even your rebellion works out to my glory. My purposes will be accomplished no matter what. My friends, I started off with the question, do you not only speak of the providence of God, do you submit to the providence of God? Do you accept that all that comes your way comes at the hand of God? Everything, without exception. Do you submit that God rules over all of his creation and that there is absolutely nothing Nothing beyond his control. And there's not even a speck of dust floating in a ray of light through the back window there that's not going exactly where God wants it to go for his purposes at this moment, though I don't claim to even understand them. Because, my friends, ultimately, that is part of our worship of the living God. And that is part of worshipping God for whom he has revealed himself to be. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I do pray that you would give us submissive and willing hearts. Help us, Father, to be among the meek who worship in spirit and in truth, who love you for the God whom you have revealed yourself to be. Help us, Father, to be obedient to your will. Help us, Father, not to be rebellious, but to do that which is right in your eyes. Help us, Father, to bring glory to Jesus, even in the way that we live. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.